Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action Wisconsin. Welcome to another beautiful winter week here in this great state of Wisconsin. We have, as always, Executive Director Robert Craig. Robert, good to have you. Good morning, everyone. Hope you're enjoying the snow. Oh, I love it. It's sweet. It's, if you live in Wisconsin, you should love snow, and uh, it's what we should be having this time of year if it wasn't for the increased warming. Uh, folks, we got a great show for you. Robert and I are already tangling before the show over uh, some of our topics and just discussing them. So it's going to be a good one. It's going to be a good one. Um, we will be joined later in the show by Dr. Michael Rosen, our uh, in-house resident economist. We're going to continue to talk about the economy, talk about the, quote, debt crisis. Next week, the Fed Reserve's meeting. Everyone expects a rate increase. We'll talk more about that, including in the context of the news today, that the economy is continuing to grow at a faster rate than expected. So uh, we'll talk more about that later. Robert, we have to talk about a number of things happening here in the state. It was a big week. We've got State of the State was this week. Again, the legislature is in session. We are preparing for a state budget of which the state of the state sort of set up. Uh, need to talk about that with you. But before we do that, we are going to talk politics. We're going to talk about the election, state Supreme Court primary. Folks, it is a month away. Uh, February 21st, that's a Tuesday, again, is the primary date. Robert, Citizen Action, uh, made a, we made a big announcement here yesterday, Wednesday. Uh, our, our board uh, made an endorsement, a dual endorsement in the race. Tell us more. Well, I think as Battleground Wisconsin listeners know, because we, um, we follow politics closely in Wisconsin, it's a nonpartisan race, but there are two candidates that are really Democrats and two that are right-wing Republicans, and that the top two vote-getters in the spring primary go to the general, and they're you know, the two Democrats. Uh, one is Janet uh, Persewitz, a uh, Milwaukee judge, and uh, the other is uh, Everett Mitchell, a, a Dane County judge who oversees the, the juvenile court and some of the most difficult drug cases. And the and you know people don't usually consider dual endorsements to be uh, a good idea, but sometimes uh, you have things in both candidates that deserve endorsement, at least from the view of Citizen Action Wisconsin. So as far as Judge Mitchell goes, uh, he is running the most one of the most model high-risk drug courts in the whole country and is saving lives and is absolutely a blueprint what he's doing and what he believes in for reforming our criminal justice system, making it a system about redeeming people, increasing public safety, and cutting back on this structurally racist system of mass incarceration. A lot of it doesn't make us safer at all, and it's highly expensive, and it wrecks lives. Uh, he is a new candidate for Supreme, state Supreme Court, and uh, and I think to some degree has been learning how to run for state Supreme Court as he does it, though he's a brilliant man with uh, Ivy League credentials. He has been mostly a jurist focusing on uh, the real problems in his court, right, and in Dane County. Uh, Janet Persewitz has more of a, you know, a traditional campaign with traditional consultants, got way out front, 
A lot of people endorsed her before they knew Judge Mitchell was running. And uh, we were impressed with her in our interviews. Everyone, I think we said last week, we had a forum. A number of you probably watched the forum. Uh, you can still watch it on the Citizen Action Facebook page with uh, Judge Persea Witts and uh, Judge Mitchell. And uh, and she was, uh, I think she ran, she is running more progressively than many of the, of the previous Democratic candidates who have run uh, for state Supreme Court. So what we, what we are saying is, they're both, it's critical race. We have to win it. It, it. It's a question of whether we have a real court that actually interprets the law and applies it to evolving conditions or whether they're ideological right wing politicians in robes. And uh, and that both would make excellent state Supreme Georgia court judges and change this court dramatically in our view. Yeah. And folks want to remind you again, the election is Tuesday, February 21st. And early voting is going to be starting very soon uh, and certainly want to strongly encourage uh, absentee voting. If, if necessary, it's good to make that process happen. So if you haven't, you haven't thought that through yet, I'm glad we're having this conversation. Please go on the website, go apply, get your absentee ballot, get hooked up for this election cycle. Uh, but make sure you have a plan to vote by Tuesday, February 21st. Um, again, Robert, you know, this we've talked about it. This is a historically important election because of all the issues that are at stake and in, in, in particularly as it relates to we could swing majority of the board. And then that has a tremendous sort of um, obviously uh, implication for a whole host of issues of which gerrymandering, uh, uh, abortion, abortion, a whole bunch of, right, all, all these issues, right? So it's historically important. That creates like this, you know, real critical imperative around winning. Uh, and I think that it's important to say that that is a part of this conversation. It's certainly a part of any analysis. And to that extent, uh, or in that way, right, it is worth pointing out uh, the campaign finance side of it. Uh, Janet has significantly outraised all of the candidates. And so that is, at least in terms of winning, is going to be to her benefit. There's no doubt about that. And Robert, the campaign is really just starting to heat up. Uh, we're really starting to see uh we're, we're really just going to start to see the ads and everything. And Robert, I want to reference, uh, I, I saw the Journal Sentinel, uh, Bice had an article uh, going after Doro for an issue that relates uh, to fentanyl and, you know, just so it's all it's all starting to happen where it's going to get real ugly real fast because these campaigns tend not to be. Um, actually, conversations about what the court does, Robert. And so uh, fashion your seatbelt, folks, Robert. Yeah, uh, you put your finger on it, Matt. These, well, let me just call it what it is. Our judicial elections, also our attorney general elections, are a travesty of democracy. Because what is brought up is little gut yet issues that say that you're uh, you know, you're with the child molesters, you're with the drug dealers, you're with the murderers and the rapists. And if you're a real judge, you have a lot of people come before you. Uh, you you have limited information. You are guessing about future behavior. There are going to be people 
that uh, that end up going and doing awful things later. That is not your fault. And what this incentive has created that we should just throw the book at everyone. And what that does actually creates a system where, where a whole lot, tens of thousands of isn't people, suffer for the careers of the judges so they won't be attacked by these sleazy political consultants they hire with with a lot of big money uh, to run their campaigns. I mean, that's what's going on. And the media profits from it, because when Dan Weiss publishes these stories, that's media impressions. That sells ads. That helps uh, give profit to Connect Corporation, the, 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 the newspaper chain that owns the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. And by the way, it doesn't even look at what this court mostly does. Mostly what this court is about is about a whole lot of cases about little people trying to get uh, their rights restored. And what right-wing judges and right-wing legislators uh, do is they set it up so the big guys always win. So if you want the big insurance companies, the big nursing home uh, uh, chains, the big drug companies, uh, companies that, that, that pollute, that abuse their employees to always win, vote right-wing. Well, this, is, this is the nut of the problem with these races is we do not actually have a conversation about what this court really does, what its critical role is, what are the kinds of cases it generally sees, and have conversations about that. We end up having this just sleaze, sleazy, sleazy contest around who's the, you know, who will hang them the, the highest and the hardest, right? Which is just, it's a, it's a grave disservice to, to justice to actually trying to create, well, first of all, just dealing with criminal justice in a way that is rational makes sense is backed in base backed in data right goes out the window um and 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 just in the name of you know some tr tr politics right trying to get through campaigns and this might make the cases a horrible way for us to 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 elect or point judges, Robert. As a rhetorician by trading, let me talk about a word to illustrate that. Uh, do you know that lynching is actually a dead metaphor? It does not refer uh, actually to the act itself. Um, it is after the someone's name. It is named after an early 19th century judge, Judge Lynch, who was a hang em all kind of judge. And then it became lynching. So what we have elections that would elect Judge Lynch, okay? Do we really want Judge Lynch? We want to come before Judge Lynch when we have a legal issue. Uh, that, that's what people, unbeknownst to them, they need to think more critically about this. We don't teach critical thinking skills. In fact, people like Ron DeSantis want to make sure we don't. That's what the attack on public education is about. Plus, this legislature need to think about, can it really be true that this conservative judge or even this Democrat judge, a judge, is just letting dangerous criminals out out of some heedless disregard for public safety? Is that really what's going on here? But people don't do that. They get triggered and say, oh, that's terrible. I'm going to vote against them. No, and, and, and we need to actually, like we just said, have a conversation about what we're always talking about, and that is wealth corporate interests dominating our democracy, smothering it, right, in the name of profit, right? And it's often behind a lot of the things we talk about, even if it's not front and center. And uh, here it is. Folks, you're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. You can also find us all over Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
when we come back, we're going to be joined, uh, maybe not right away, but sometime in the next uh, break by Dr. Michael Rosen, our in-house economist. You're listening to Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're going to continue talking uh, about what's been going on here in the state. Um, Robert, we, uh, before the break, we talked about the Supreme Court, our endorsement. We talked about the importance of what's been going on uh, around this race in terms of the kind of poor dialogue that it often uh, uh, creates. So <laughs> that stuff is a product of our just completely dysfunctional political system, which is on full display. This week continues to be last week. We talked about the kickoff of the legislature <laughs> with state Senator Smith and how it was essentially already off the rails from the get go. Uh, state of the state this week, Robert, uh, governor gives a pretty, you know, it's a pretty state straightforward and it, for, and, and we all know the governor Evers, it's not going to be some kind of a wild show or, or anything. It, it was a pretty straightforward, uh, rendition of things speaking for bipartisanship looking for areas where there might be um possible areas of cooperation while trying to while being very clear that he is in opposition to the flat tax we'll talk more about that with dr rosen later um but robert republicans sat on their hands democrats wildly clapping it was actually like it was a, a theatrical display of dysfunction in many ways. If you're just someone who went and watched this and said, "Whoa, these we're going to get hey, we're going to get something done," uh, Robert, your thoughts on the state of the state and how it connects to where we're headed here with the a critical state budget fight? The contrast could not be more stark. We have a governor who just won re-election. Uh, and so that that and had therefore has public legitimacy, represents majority opinion, right? And we and and we have a legislature that is there illegitimately because it rigged the rules and had to have a supermajority. And there's not only the theatrics you saw as far as people's physical actions. Look, the governor is budget is supposed to be seriously considered. It's part of the, the norm is it's part of the process that the governor actually has all of the power of all these very well staffed administrative agencies that work on all these issues and is coming up with a budget for the legislature to consider. Is it supposed to just adopt rubber stamp it? No, it's supposed to play a huge role in the process. And, and it's supposed to have public hearings where it listens to public input, which it really doesn't do. But instead, you get Robin Voss saying, and I quote, all the all governor's ideas will probably be tossed aside like we always do. And we'll start over. There you if have it. Creative ideas. He should probably reach out and talk to us. Hmm. There you have it. That's all you need. He just to know. did. He just gave a speech to you all. And, you know, you're in the same capital. You all know where he is because you're authoritarians because you don't care that you don't have any actual popular assent, you're just going to mandate a corporate agenda. And by the way, everything the governor said, uh, 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 school funding, actually addressing uh, to some degree the shared revenue crisis, challenging the mental health crisis, which the Republicans always pay lip service to when there's Especially a, anytime there's a and shooting and do nothing on, right? And which is related to their shared revenue starving 
because counties are the place where human services are delivered and the counties are not getting enough just to do mandated things. So if you want mental health services that keep people from being from, from becoming dangerous to public safety, ending up in the court system, or God forbid, committing uh, uh, heinous violent acts of mass violence, you want to fully fund the counties and their mental health services. They don't. Uh, and of course, this stuff's all a dead and arrival, but what they want is a flat tax because the people who pay to elect them and are behind them, they don't have enough. We've had 50 years of the rich, the top 1% getting most of the benefits, economic growth, and apparently that's not enough and it's just a huge burden to give anything back to the rest of the community until it's zero. Yeah, and we have been talking about this. We're going to continue to talk about this because it's important for us as progressive activists to understand our role right now in this process is to be, and like I've said before, you can phrase it how you want, either wind in either sails or pressure pressure on him because he's the only statewide elected actor in this in this drama. He's the, the, the gerrymandered fraudulent leadership on the other side. We've had two consecutive budget cycles where we just took the Republican budget. It is the only part of the we've we have had this demonstrated to us, right? The Lucy with the football that it's the only part of the process where they have to deal with the governor, right? Like you can't get a budget without the two of them compromising. So it is critical folks. And it's why we're going to keep talking about this, that we are engaged in this process and that we support this governor being bold in this process and not, and, and, and it may involve holding up this budget with them because they are on the wrong side of a lot of issues here. And that is going to require something new and it's going to require historic public pressure. Folks, Dr. Michael Rosen has just joined us and he's come in at exactly a perfect juncture because we brought Dr. Rosen in to talk about, you know, a number of the broader economic things that are going and, and certainly the state budget is part of it with the ridiculous flat tax proposal. But Dr. Rosen, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. It's good to have you. We've got so much to talk about. We're, we are in the middle of talking about the state budget, so we might as well immediately get your comments. We're talking about the state of the state speech, right? And um, we know since we last talked to you, LeMahieu and the Republicans have made it clear that they're going to push through, try to push through a flat tax uh, in the state of the state. Evers made it very clear as one of the few things he was kind of like, you know, I'm not going to I'm not participating. I'm not looking for bipartisanship, uh, which was encouraging, said no to the flat tax, um, but they're not going to stop. So I want to get your comments on that. But then more broadly, also um, shared revenue, huge issue. Evers is saying he's going to really push. Republicans seem to be saying they also want resources. But I want to get your comment on Voss's idea also about a 1% sales tax, which seems even worse than a flat tax to me. But, Michael, your thoughts on the state of the state and both of these sort of um, these questions around how do we uh, pay the bills? Well, that's a that's a, a mouthful. Uh but let's start. Let's start with the flat tax. I was glad to see Governor Evers draw a line in the sand, and I hope they really hold hold to that line. Uh, just to be clear, uh, I'll make a few points. The flat tax 
is a massive giveaway to the richest 1.4%. That's people making over $500,000 a year. They get 30% of the tax cut. Only 17% of that tax cuts goes to middle-class and working-class people making less than $100,000 a year. So the purpose of this is to reward the people who finance the Republicans, the Elines, the Hendricks, the very wealthy, uh, and it has nothing to do with the state's competitiveness or any sense of fairness or funding the necessary public goods and services, including education, public safety, and let's break it down. We're talking about stopping reckless driving. We're talking about filling potholes in the streets. These are the things that are funded by government, uh, having clean water, clean and safe water, having teachers in the classrooms. These are things that are funded by government that are threatened because when fully enacted, a flat tax would cost the state $5 billion a year annually, five, a little over $5 billion actually. Let me put that in perspective. We give the University of Wisconsin system, the entire system, 1.6 billion, okay? Uh, we give the, uh, what, one, uh, we give the, the uh, uh, state correction system, 1.6 billion. So uh, that's two, uh, 3.2 billion. That's it's unconscionable, Mike. It's it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It close. You'd have to shut down the University of Wisconsin system and the state prison system. And I know some people would like want the major prison reform, but you'd have to shut them entirely down, lay off all the people, shut down the functions, and you're still only halfway. It's actually 1.3 billion each. So it comes to 2.6, half of what this tax cut does. It's it's out, it's a total gutting of state government unless they impose a major sales tax. And well, there talk is about that, Michael. About talk, that. talk about that one percent sales tax. And again, folks, I want to remind you, Robin Voss floated this idea that as a way of funding shared revenue, that we would do it through a one percent sales tax, which Michael seems incredibly regressive. Yeah, uh, sales taxes are significantly more regressive than income taxes. And let's just so everybody knows what terminology we're yep. using. A progressive tax is a tax where as your income goes up, you pay a higher percentage. It doesn't mean that on every dollar you pay a higher percentage, but as your income increases, you go in, uh, say above 25,000, you'll pay a higher percentage than you did on your first 25,000. From after 83,000, I think it is, you pay a little bit higher percentage than you did between 25 and 83,000. That's a progressive tax. And the idea is those people who are making significant money, uh, who are ma making significant incomes, there's two principles here. One is they have a greater ability to pay. It, it imposes less hardship on them to contribute to the public good. And the other is that they have benefited from 
all of the public investments, whether it's public schools, public universities, whether it's the technical colleges training workers that work for them, whether it's the roads and bridges and infrastructure that they benefit, that they should pay a fair share and that they have a greater ability to do it. A regressive tax is Michael, a tax. I got a quick I got a quick take a break. We're gonna get regressive on the backside of this break, folks. You're listening okay. to the Battleground. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Michael, you just got what progressive regressive. The the le- the less you make, the higher percentage you pay in income. And a sales tax is regressive. People don't think of it because they think, oh, everybody pays 1%. But the fact of the matter is that most of the income that a low income or moderate income person makes is spent on items covered by the sales tax. A much smaller percentage of the income of someone making $500,000 a year or a million dollars a year is spent on items covered by the sales tax. So they are paying a smaller percentage. And let me just make one point about the flat tax. The argument that Voss and the other pro-plutocrat officials are proposing, uh, the argument that they're making is that that, uh, we have to compete with other states that have adopted a flat tax. But in virtually every one of those states, they have a much higher sales tax than we do, and they have higher excise taxes, gasoline, tobacco, et cetera. Wisconsin's overall tax structure, and the way economists generally look at it, is not isolating one tax, the income or the sales, but the entire package of taxes. That is the excise taxes, the sales taxes, the income taxes, Wisconsin's taxes are already regressive. The wealthiest 20% pay about 7% of their income in taxes, whereas the middle class pays above 10% of their income in taxes. This would this flat tax would make and adopting a sales tax would make that tax structure even more regressive. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Uh, Dr. Rosen, I want to get Robert in. Before I do, I just want to add one thing. One thing that kind of bothers me in all this, and I, I just think we, we're we stuck in this box where we're sort of defending the status quo. And quite frankly, the national level, right, we're going after millionaires tax. This stuff's very popular. Why are we not actually proposing, you know, a more progressive taxation? It, it, so like the debate, skews in one direction. We are sitting here just defending the current system when quite frankly, we ought to be looking. We have, we've had corporate giveaways. We've had all kinds of tax breaks over the last couple decades for the wealthy and for the special interests. And I, I wish we were actually proposing uh, like they are at the national level, real wealth tax, things of actual that are wildly popular, but yet here we are defending this crap again. Anyways, uh, Robert, you get the next question for Dr. Rosen. Yeah, Matt makes a great point. We we actually don't have that progressive attack system, and we should be asking for much more. And that kind of vision is not currently coming from elected Democrats in the state. It is at the national level where 
President Biden supports the billionaire's tax um, and, and other things that uh, people that two conservative Democrats won't do in the Senate. So what's interesting, Michael, is if you look at the trajectory of the 20th century, um, you used to have Republicans like Theodore Roosevelt calling for massive inheritance taxes, even limits on how much money you could make because it creates laziness and plutocracy. And we had an extremely progressive, extremely high rate of, of progressive income tax and inheritance taxes from the New Deal until the 1970s. And since then, since conservatives seized control of the national agenda, it's been attacked systematically. And what strikes me is, it seems like nothing's ever enough. We already have a much less, more regressive tax system nationally and in states and in Wisconsin, which is all the changes in recent years have been to make it more regressive, right? And yet that's never enough. It's a radical movement. I mean, the radicals are on the right in this country that seems to want zero. And it's completely blind to the fact that most of the income gains have gone to the, the wealthiest in this country for 50 years since this change occurred. And if you look at a state like Wisconsin and Minnesota, uh, when uh, Scott Walker was slashing taxes for corporations on the ground, it would generate economic growth and Minnesota was actually taxing them more, Minnesota has grown much more. Their, their position is not evidence-based, their economic claims are a lie, and this is just a greedy money grab. Uh, would you agree or am I missing something about the wisdom and the uh, their economic analysis on the right? You're absolutely right about the uh, experiment, if we can call it that, in, in real time uh, between Minnesota and Wisconsin. Walker cut taxes of corporations and the wealthy. We had slower job growth. In fact, we had pretty anemic job growth. Uh, if you remember, Walker promised 250,000 jobs in his first term, and we didn't get them uh, even uh, in eight years of Walker, uh, we had slower economic growth. We had uh, higher poverty rates than Minnesota. So you're absolutely right about that. Uh, and that is a good example of the myth that tax cuts uh, create economic, especially tax cuts for corporations and the wealthy create economic growth. Uh, it's called trickle down economics or supply side economics. And of course, even George Herbert Walker Bush, when he ran against Reagan in 1979 in the uh, Republican primary, called it voodoo economics. He was right then, uh, and uh, uh, he, his, what he said is correct today. Uh, and I Michael, think Michael, just a second. The reason for that is not just correlations. It is that they don't put the money into productive economic things. They put the money in thing in in stocks in purchasing things internationally and in, in generational wealth that they have so much money, just when you free more up for them doesn't mean they're going to do something socially useful for it. The only people that are going to do that is our democracy. Like if right. we were to build really powerful mass transit, they're not going to do it with that money, but they're funding the us so we if can't you, If you it. cut the taxes of the wealthy or corporations for that matter, you have no control over what they do with that in increased income. So, for example, let's take the first example of this, which was when Ronald Reagan cut the federal income tax with the uh, compliance of a Democratic Congress, by the way, uh, from 70 percent down to 28 percent. 
we the the promise was that there would be a massive investment in plant and equipment. Instead, we had the weakest investment in plant and equipment in the post-World War II era, but we had a, in, a record level of mergers and acquisitions, which have nothing to do, have no impact on growing economic wealth, on increasing productive capacity, or increasing employment. In fact, in general, they reduce employment because when you merge companies, one of the ways they pay for it, the debt that they've accrued is by slashing their labor force. Uh, that was a graphic example. And you're right, uh, under the recent Trump $1.9 trillion uh, Trump tax cuts, by the way, uh, something that the Republicans in Congress had no problem passing, uh, increasing the debt limit to pay for, uh, that 1.9 trillion had no, all the studies indicate no impact on job growth, but what it did do was increase stock buybacks. It's all financial manipulation. Um, so well, to your other question, just let me answer one other thing Robert raised, and that is the people like the Koch brothers who are funding the think tanks that are provide the Hoover Institute, the Mellon, the Bradley Foundation, et cetera, have been opposed to the New Deal. And when I talk about the New Deal, I talk about progressive income taxes, even though they predate the New Deal, Social Security, uh, and then following Social Security under Johnson, Medicare. Those are the pillars of the New Deal uh, social safety net and how you pay for it. Those the people like the Koch brothers and today the radical Republicans have been opposed to that project since its inception, and they are trying to roll it back. It's pretty difficult to just come out and say, I want to get rid of Social Security. I want to get rid of Medicare, especially because a lot of people who are on those programs vote Republican. But if you starve the beast, which they have said is exactly their program. They call government the beast. And if you starve it, as Grover Norquist, the Republican strategist with a lot of influences said, I don't want to eliminate government, just shrink it down so you can drown it in the bathroom. You starve it of resources. You starve it of resources by cutting the federal income tax, by cutting taxes, the uh, uh, progressive income tax in the state of Wisconsin. And then government doesn't have the resources to, to do one of two things either to provide the service at all, or it provides it so inefficiently and so effectively that people begin to say, government sucks. We can't have them provide this service. Let's privatize it. Uh, and that's their agenda. Yep. So look, Michael, we're going to, we're, we're getting close to a break here, but I do want you've, you've really transitioned here. I wanted to get your specific comment, right? around this debt crisis that that the republicans have manufactured right and you you just touched upon it right they were especially under trump a huge part of creating the debt and and the current debt that we're talking about is stuff that we've already incurred and then you try to use that to have a crisis to try to get concessions while never having to take on the popularity of Medicare, Social Security, right? And so wanted to get your thoughts after the break about where we are in the debt crisis uh, and 
President Biden's response right now, which is basically, I'm not going to negotiate. And so it seems like we are headed to a real crisis here because I'm convinced there's no way the radicals in the House are going to move on anything. And McCarthy's not leading anything right now. But want to get your thoughts after the break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin where Citizen Action. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are joined by Dr. Michael Rosen, our in-house economist. And for the break, I wanted to get a comment on the current debt crisis as posed by the Republicans and the response from Biden, uh, Dr. Rosen. Yeah, so there's a lot of misunderstanding, but it's really pretty simple. The debt limit does not cause the debt any more than a thermometer causes a fever. And let me let me say that again. It doesn't cause the debt any more than a thermometer causes a fever. Yep. Debt grows when spending exceeds revenues. That's it. That's it. Congress should abolish the debt limit. That's what it really should do and place it with a simple common sense rule that automatically authorizes any borrowing necessary to implement the fiscal legislation, that is the bills that affect the federal de deficit. But there are several things we need to think about. Uh, the debt limit was first established in 1917 to make it easier, easier to pay for the mobilization efforts of World War I. Because before that, every time Congress had to authorize a bond issue, basically a way to borrow money from the public, the limit was raised 78 times since 1960, 20 times since 2001. Congress usually raises the debt limit before it's reached. There's no crisis. There shouldn't be a crisis because the debt limit is not increasing the debt. The debt limit is paying for the things that Congress has already improved. So now you have this ironic phenomena where the Republicans are saying, we're not going to raise the debt limit, even though the debt, uh, in, the deficit increased three times by three times under Trump, largely because of a $1.9 trillion tax cut that he gave. They didn't worry about passing, increasing the debt limit under President Trump, nor did they worry about passing the debt limit under President Bush. Remember, he waged two wars under false pretenses, Iraq and Afghanistan, and a massive $1.23 trillion tax cut. And they were, they passed it with flying colors and never worried about paying the debts. What we're talking here is about paying the debts. Incidentally, there are only two countries in the world that have the debt limit. One of them is the happiest country in the world for some reason, Denmark, but that's a different story. It's mainly because it has such a robust social welfare system. Uh, but back to the point, we're the only two. Now, here's the concern politically. Here's the concern politically. And you're right, President Biden has drawn a line in the sand. What I'm worried about is that his new chief of staff is a fiscal hawk, Zietz. Zietz is how I think is Jeff Zietz. He uh, comes from the plutocratic wing of the Democratic Party. He has been a proponent of budget cuts in the past. 
and in fact, Biden himself, even though he's drawn a line in the sand, in 2012, Obama had Biden negotiate with McConnell uh, around at a, a, a around the debt ceiling. The Republicans were demanding that the uh, Bush tax cuts be made permanent, and the Democrats had an opportunity to end them because they were coming to an end, and Biden folded. Obama was so concerned about that, but in 2013, he did not allow Biden to participate in the budget negotiations. So I'm glad to see that Biden has drawn a line in the sand. And I'm glad to see Chuck Schumer, who at one point was known as Wall Street's uh, senator. Uh, I think he's in a different place more recently. Uh, but I'm glad to see Schumer is saying, no, we're not going to uh, we're not going to negotiate budget cuts. Uh, but I think there has there needs to be a lot of public pressure on the administration that they they do not have to engage in negotiations yeah. with the Republicans. If, in fact. The the debt ceiling is reached and the Republicans don't blink and I don't think they will. The go the federal government can continue to pay the bonds which will uh, uh, mean that we aren't defaulting on our debt. What it'll have to do is it'll have to start delaying payments on things like veterans benefits, social security, Medicare, and they should do it because yeah. once that happens, people on social security will start calling their congressmen and it will break away the handful of moderate Republicans or even maybe some others uh, who realize that their political futures are dependent on the people who are getting angry because they're holding up the government from paying their Social yeah. Security. M Michael, that's it. We've we have talked about this before. Um, first of all, Schumer has an obligation to do this because they screwed up the lame duck. I'm sorry. This should have been dealt with in the lame duck. It could have been dealt with in the lame duck. They deliberately didn't deal with it in the lame duck. And so now they have an obligation to play hardball because the fact of the matter is they created the situation. They knew what kind of house they were going to be dealing with. They got that kind of house. It was on full display from the beginning. Right. So now they have to, we have to go down this path. I do not expect that this is going, I think where you just went is where this is headed. It's going to remind me of the nineties all over with the government shutdown. I think we're headed in that direction because it's required. And uh, Biden was right to ask where the hell's your plan, right? Because uh, they, well, they, well, they can't get together on anything. And so they need to call their bluff now with the American public. It's going to be ugly, but. Uh, well, you're Robert, absolutely right, but. You know, the alternative is uglier. Yeah. The alternative oh, is, you know, cutting Social Security. And, you know, there's different ways they can propose cutting it. And this is what I'm worried about. I don't think that the Biden administration would say, OK, let's cut the benefits. OK, but what they could do is raise the retirement age, which is something that people have been on board. And remember, right now in France, people are they have had the largest protests in French history uh, because they want to raise the retirement age uh, above 62. 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's one one way they could try to cut it. Uh, another would be to to restrict eligibility in some way or another. Uh, but none uh, of these are acceptable. No, none of these are acceptable. And of course, those of us on this talk on this podcast are want to expand Medicare. We don't want to we don't want to restrict it. Uh, so uh, what's critical is that the administration and elected officials hold firm. Now, I happen to believe Sh Schumer and the Senate take a lot of pride in the bills that they have passed recently, <laughs> which are increased spending bills, including uh, helping in, in green energy, uh, some very positive things around uh, medical care that will actually save some money uh, in the long run. Uh, and so I think that they may be, uh, they may be a very strong force in holding the line. Uh, but they again, have to be. I think we, we really they have need... an obligation to be Michael and Schumer does. I'm sorry. Again, we're stuck in this thing. We're even talking about cuts to so all of that, where that's part of the dynamic was created by us. We had control. These are popular programs. Right. This would be us negotiating with ourselves. And I say that as Democrats, it's absolutely there needs to be a hard line. This is a completely yeah. phony crisis. And, they, and, and we win. We win if we hold the line. I mean, anybody absolutely. who's ever been in negotiations and whether luckily or not, luckily, I've been in a lot of them, uh, knows that you, it's sometimes hard to say no, but you just got to say no. Hey, You've hey Michael. Say no and 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 the and let let those who are responsible for causing the crisis bear the responsibility. There is no doubt that if the Republicans refuse to budge on this and they we begin to have veterans pay held back and Social Security payments held back, people it will be abundantly clear who's responsible. Yeah. It's not Biden and it's not the Democrats. It's uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's uh, the Republicans in general. And the Democrats should know that they have a strong hand to play here and they should play it. Michael, Robert, do you guys remember President Newt Gingrich? Oh, that's right. His career ended. Yeah. So I know we're Crap like this almost out of time. Just two observations. And I guess we may have to bring Michael back if he, he probably has extensive comments on these. Uh, one is, look, let's give Biden Schumer some credit under Obama. I know he's been a more progressive post president. He was seeking a grand bargain with the Republicans on entitlement, Social Security, Medicare, and uh, it only didn't happen because the Republicans decide they didn't want to give him a victory. We don't have that with Biden. So give Biden and Schumer credit, though we have to still be worried about how they execute this. I think Michael's idea of having tangible cuts that at uh, temporary that actually put pressure on these members of Congress and uh, uh, public pressure is important. I do think it should be done with some notice. So they say on May 1st, we reduce Social Security checks by X amount, uh, unless Congress raises the debt limit. And then it becomes very clear. The third thing, I don't think we have time for this. Look, the mainstream media, a lot of Democrat establishment is 
buying into the idea there is a deficit crisis, that somehow the Republicans therefore have some legitimacy if their method is kind of terroristic. And it's just not the case. And it, it is not a family budget. The government of the United States is a currency issuer, and we can we can run these deficits. Our biggest problem is, is that we're killing the revenue. We we got to go. Deficits. And you're 100 percent right, Robert. That's why I'm so upset when I when I say when we didn't deal with this in the lame duck, the, the we we automatically invited this discussion and frame by not getting it done. Anyways, Michael. Dr. Rosen, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, again, we'll have you back on. We'll, we're going to continue to track all this stuff. This stuff's going to play out over over the next few months. So we'll we'll keep talking about it. We really appreciate your time, uh, Dr. Rosen. Let me just end by saying yes. I'm glad to be here. And we don't have a budget deficit crisis at all in this country. Uh, the 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 budget uh, deficit today is pretty much what it was ten years ago. Uh, and, and so and, we'll, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that at a few. And absolutely. Minutes. It goes back to what I was also talking about. We have the tools to also solve any shortcomings. Let's go get the resources from the wealthy. It's wildly popular. Let's go do it. Uh, thank you folks. Uh, you're listening uh, to the battleground. We got to wrap this up. Want to thank our producer, Brian Woolridge, who makes the show happen every week. And of course, Dr. Michael Rosen for joining us folks. We'll see you next week here from Wisconsin. <laughs>